Hello, and welcome to episode 109 of the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. My name is Seth Perrin, historian and deputy director of the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum here at Camp Shelby. And with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Toady, former skipper of the fast attack submarine USS Indianapolis, Commodore Submarine Squadron 3 in Pearl Harbor, and many other postings. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Seth. This week, Bill and I have a return guest with us, and as such, I would like to welcome back my friend and amazing historian, John Parshall. John, how are you this morning? Oh, living the dream. <laughs> Aren't we all? Yeah, exactly. Aren't we all? <laughs> Carrying well, myself away from Ukraine, you know, for long enough to talk about the Pacific War. So, yeah. 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 It's well, a distraction. It's been a good, good week for Ukraine as well, though. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. So if you listen last week as we set up the battle we are about to discuss, we left you as the sun was setting on the night of June 3rd, 1942 as the sun set on the night of June 3rd. A lot has happened over the last few hours. PBY Catalinas from Midway have discovered the incoming Japanese invasion fleet and have attacked it successfully somewhat uh, with, of all things, a PBY that dropped a torpedo. And we'll get to torpedoes in a little bit. Uh, that being said, the nighttime torpedo attack does not turn the invasion fleet away. Surprise, surprise. The train keeps on chugging along. So with that, and because we got a ton to talk about today, we're going to pick up right where we left off, uh, right around 0300 hours on June 4th aboard the Japanese and American carriers. John, what is it looking like on the Japanese carriers right now? Uh, they are up very early this morning. A lot of the hangar crewmen are probably up around 0230. Um, the pilots will probably sleep a little bit later if they are capable of sleeping at this point. Uh, so arming activities are going on aboard the carriers, probably from 0300 onward, getting these birds ready, uh, fueled up in many cases, armed, uh, with, uh, land attack bombs on the, on the level bombers. Uh, they're going to put the dive bombers up on the flight deck. And, uh, when they lift the, the level bombers up there, they're going to be warming all of their aircraft engines up. So it's this huge choreographed operation happening on all four of these carriers simultaneously to get this attack force of 108 aircraft up on the flight decks, warmed up and ready to take off by 0430. What, what are they, what are they, what are they briefed about? Like, what is their, you know, what is their mission today? What are they trying to do? You know, we don't know that much about the specific briefing details, but the operation is intended to put Midway Island out of business. And so uh, they are going to hit it with uh, level bombers that are going to be aimed primarily at the runways and the aircraft uh, handling facilities. And then that's going to be followed up immediately afterwards with dive bomber attacks by two squadrons of dive bombers that are supposed to go after point targets, frankly, mostly anti-aircraft installations and that sort of thing, yeah. uh, because they're going to be invading this place, hopefully within a day or two. So they need to reduce the island's defenses to impotence uh, before their soldiers go ashore. So so at roughly the same time, you said they're up about 0230-ish, 0300. Yep. At roughly the same time, the same thing's going on aboard the U.S. carriers. Uh, the air crews, the Reveille that morning is 0300. Um, by 0330, they're serving chow. Uh, and, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, they, the Japanese CVs haven't been discovered yet, but the air crew aboard Yorktown Enterprise and Hornet know that, you know, as a friend of mine used to say, the defecation is going to hit the ventilation at some point during the day, and they're getting ready to go. Yeah. Um you know, much like what you were saying about the Japanese, and we'd said in the previous episode about, you know, restless sleep or any <laughs> lack thereof. 
uh, the same kind of things going on this morning. You know, there's uh, they're serving breakfast. They're serving the the, uh, the warriors breakfast, you know, steak and eggs and uh, aboard all three carriers. And um, it's I, I remember guys saying that they uh, Don Hoff specifically saying and we'll hear about him later. Uh, he kind of moved the eggs around the the plate. You know, <laughs> he wasn't, wasn't very hungry. And it was uh, uh, he used to say he used to tell me, he said that uh, breakfast among the air crew especially the gunners and scouting six, it was a jovial group, you know, you, you couldn't go by at least, you know, 30 seconds without hearing somebody make derogatory comments about somebody else's mother or something like that. And, but on the morning of June the 4th, there was none of that. Everybody was silent as the grave. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you see some of the same sort of behavior on the Japanese carriers as well. We know for instance, that a lot of the men changed into fresh clothes um, probably, you know, showered or, you know, bathed at least. And that was not an everyday kind of thing, uh, mm-hmm. when you're under wartime steaming conditions. So, you know, a lot of these guys are definitely girding themselves for what they know is going to be a pretty long day, uh, mm-hmm. ahead of them. Who's the strike leader, the Japanese strike leader? He's a gentleman named Tomonaga, Tomonaga Joichi. Uh, he's a Lieutenant. He is Hiryu's air group, uh, commander. And uh, I'm sorry, I've got a, a cat named Akagi down here mewing uh, in the That's background. Okay. A cat named Akagi? A cat named Akagi, yeah. Do you, do, do you name all your cats after Japanese aircraft carriers? Yeah, the, the first two were Soryu and Hiryu. That was Cat, that right? cat Dib 2, and we've got Cat Dib <laughs> 1 now. So, John, Ch- you've been doing this too long. Kitty yeah. Butai is, is a thing here at the house. Yeah. Um, Kitty Butai. Kitty Butai, that's correct. Um <laughs> Tomonaga is a China vet. He has not been aboard uh, the carrier force before. He's an experienced aviator. Um, he's going to be leading the strike this morning because the guy who would have been in charge, uh, Fuchida, Mitsuo Fuchida, had an appendicitis a few days ago and was laid up in sick bay. Uh, Fuchida manages to kind of crawl uh, up to Akagi's bridge this morning. Uh, so he's going to be a witness to it most of the day's events. And Fuchido uh, is a veteran of which battles before this? Pretty much everything. I mean, everything, right? is Pearl Akagi's Harbor. air group leader. He was the strike leader at Pearl Harbor. Um, Fuchida is a very charismatic uh, individual, a, a tremendous leader, uh, was handpicked by Genda to, to be the, the strike leader for Pearl Harbor because he knows that Fuchida's got the charisma and the leadership skills to kind of, you know, cajole this big group of airmen into being a coordinated unit. But yeah, he's he's out of it this morning because he is still recovering from this appendicitis. I, I don't like to do what ifs, and, I, and I'm not going to propose it as such, but how much do you think him not being a part of this does anything or does it do anything at all? I don't think it does anything at all. Okay. Um, I'm very much a, uh, I'm not an anti-great man historian, but I'm very much of, of the mindset that these sorts of wars are wars of systems mm-hmm. and that Fuchida is a product of a military system. Uh, I, I don't see anything that he could have done differently that, you know, Tomonaga wouldn't have done. Gotcha. So, that's fair enough. The, the theory of systems actually is a pretty old theory in the U.S. Navy. In fact, the, the debate before even World War One was: does the fleet operate as a system or an organism? Right. And that went back and forth. Um, you know, from the earliest days of the 20th century, 
and I agree with you that the personalities, once you got the motions in place, the big hero personalities pretty much removed from the dynamics of what was happening with right. some notable exceptions. I mean, decisions made by people like uh, Spruance during Midway, I think, or, and Halsey, you know, in Guadalcanal, and we could talk about sure. that later, right? But, um, but the system is what allows adaptability in Correct. situ. And, and one could argue that it was the Japanese adherence to dogma over adaptability that was part of what led to their downfall. Well, um, but we could talk about that. We're mm-hmm. going to talk about that later this afternoon because I have right. some pretty pointed comments uh, regarding some of the, the Japanese admirals later on today. But yeah, in terms of what's going down this morning, uh, the, the strike force is in perfectly good hands because Tomonaga knows what he's doing. And furthermore, all of the air groups involved in this operation know what they're doing as well. Yeah, right. um, yeah. this is the Japanese, cream of the crop, you know. Yeah, I mean, and Japanese deck operations at this point are just a well-oiled machine. So, mm-hmm. you know, what you see is when they start launching at 0430, they put up 108 aircraft, 30 planes um, per ship or thereabouts, and a little more than that. It's about 33 when you kick in the cap fighters that are going up at the same time and all that. They get that entire strike force off, formed up in the air, and on the way to the target in about 10 minutes. God, that's incredible. That's yeah. absolutely incredible. The Americans, it's a lot of rehearsal. Yeah, a lot of rehearsal. You know, oh, yeah. They really know what they're doing. And just so, to reprise just a moment, the, the Americans are assembling at Point Long. They, they expect the fleets to appear somewhere. They don't want the American aircraft carriers to take off and give away the fact that the American aircraft carriers are there. So they're doing recon using land-based airplanes, right? Yeah. I mean, at this point, the Americans have no idea where the Japanese are. They don't even know that they're here. I mean, all they've got in terms of hard intel is that we know that there's an invasion force coming. Mm -hmm. And again, we've moved, I say we, the Americans have actually moved west from Point Luck. Point Luck is, you know, way in the mirror at this point. Okay, yeah. yeah. So so aboard Midway Island, uh, you said that Japanese launch at 0430. Uh, Rough time estimation for uh, PBYs taking off is 0415 from from Midway Island. Yeah, Um, we have planes up first. Yeah, so, so we're actually ahead of the game. <laughs> Granted, by 15 minutes, but 15 minutes can mean a hell of a lot. Slower airplanes, though, right? Yeah. The PBYs yeah. were slower than the carrier. Oh, for sure. Aircraft. For sure. But but we're out putting our yeah. fingers out in the air trying mm-hmm. to find what we can find. Um, everything that's going down on the island, and this is what makes this so cool, is that there's so many moving parts happening at the same exact time. It's 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 kind of unbelievable. At the same time that the Japanese are launching and heading towards Midway Island, the PBYs are already up in the air. Uh, the American aircraft on the island, and I'm talking about VMSB 241, 221, uh, VMF 221, um, anything that anything that can fly that's going to see action here in the next couple of hours, they're fueled up, they're armed, they're ready to go. The pilots are doing whatever they need to be doing. They're getting ready to go. And one thing I'd like to interject too that, that a lot of people ask me, um, you know, did did the Midway aviators know that the Americans had carriers mm-hmm. in the area? Well, the certainly the base commander knew. I mean, mm-hmm. Simmons knew what was going sure. on. Sure. Um, had visited him not too long ago, right? May yeah. 2nd. But this is all yeah. before. Yeah. All, yeah. So I remember Bert saying, 
specifically Bert and and the Marines that I knew, Leon Williams and Sumner Witten, guys like that, they did not know that the carriers were there. Okay. The first time that they knew that the American carriers were there or were anywhere near them is when Hornets VB-8 had to land landed on Midway on Island Midway, later yeah. in the day. That's right. the first time they had any inkling that Fast. American aircraft carriers were out there. Right. So the timeline yeah. we're going but to came from Shangri-La, right? <laughs> like that, yeah. Yeah. But uh last thing I'd like to interject too, because uh, this is going to be important when we're talking later on about what's happening on the Japanese flight decks. Um one of the reasons that this this evolution of uh you know deck operations takes a long time to kind of front load is that they do have to warm up their aircraft engines on the flight deck because unlike American carriers. Uh, the Japanese carriers had enclosed hangar spaces, and so you couldn't warm up an engine down, you know, in the hangars itself. It had to be on the flight deck, and that's a process that takes, depending on the ambient temperature, you know, 15, 20 minutes or something like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, the total time that it takes actually from the time somebody says go and you start pulling planes out of the hangar decks and getting them up on the flight deck, this is about a 40 to 45 minute evolution. And those enclosed hangar decks are going to yes. come back to a uh, haunt. Yes. For specific aircraft carriers <laughs> in a little while. In a little while. So what time is about, what is about, uh, about 10 minutes to six-ish that the PBYs spot Kudobutai? Yeah. Something like 552, I think it was. Right. So, uh, John, take us through the midway strike, the Japanese midway strike. What, what's, uh, give us a rundown. What's going, what, what happens here? What's going sure. down? Um, so, you know, the Japanese force comes in, uh, like, like I say, 108 minus a couple of planes that have, you know, some mechanicals and that sort of thing. They approach in a very nice, tight, uh, formation from the, the Northwest. Uh, the Marines send up what fighters they are capable of sending up to, uh, uh to do their thing. They, the Marines actually get some licks in and, and knock a couple of those Japanese planes down. You know, I'll let you cover the the blow by blow from the Marines. Sure. Um, it's not a pretty sight. They find yeah. out very quickly that G the Zero is a really good fighter, and gosh, the guys that fly them for Kido Butai really know what they're doing. Um, so, you know, the Marine fighters in most cases are able to make maybe one pass against the attacking force, and then they're just swatted aside. Mm-hmm. Um, the Japanese level bombers come in and do their thing, starting at about oh six thirty four. Uh, they paste, uh, they basically come in, they circle around the island and come in from the northeast to go down kind of a long axis of each of the two islands that are in the atoll, hit the airfield, um, hit the fuel tanks, blow up some barracks. Uh, and then about five minutes later, the dive bombers come in one at a time against each island with a squadron apiece for each of the islands mm-hmm. um, and are doing their thing. Um, but you know, the, the attack is all over within, it doesn't last more than about seven or eight minutes, really. Uh, and at that point, the Japanese are off to a reassembly point off to the, the west of the islands, pull all their squadrons together and then start heading back to the carriers. Yeah. And forgive me for this, but this is the legendary director, John Ford was on Midway and filmed all of this and actually got wounded, right? And mm-hmm. since he was a reserve naval officer at this point, he was awarded the Purple Heart. Yeah. Um, but yeah. it was pretty, pretty amazing from the standpoint. Later, he was on D-Day. But, I mean, at this point, 
pretty amazing and coincidental, uh, almost serendipitous that he was there to record all this. And this is really some of the first big time movie footage that the American people will see in newsreels in the months to come. And and it ranks among some of the only photographic evidence that we have of the battle. Right. Uh, You know, for, Mm -hmm. for a battle of this magnitude, the quantity of decent photographs that come out of it, even moving pictures or still photography is just Mm -hmm. laughable. It's virtually nil. I mean, frankly, it really is. Anyway. So, So it's, it's, it's important to note that before the Japanese, ever strike the island and as soon as the word gets out you know that the japanese i mean that the japanese that the pbys spot the japanese carriers yep. midway launches everything with wings yep if if it can fly it's in the air and and it's on the way to wherever it was that the japanese aircraft were spotted our japanese aircraft carriers were spotted and that includes the spds and the, and the wind indicators from uh, vms vmsb 241 uh, the fighters we already mentioned about, they're not going to the Japanese carriers. This is VMF-221s. These are F-4Fs and F-2A Brewsters. They're going to hover and attack the the incoming Japanese aircraft. But, I mean, this is everything, man. This is the B-26s. This is everything that Nimitz piled on that island. The TBFs, so, Bird Ernest, all those guys, are, too, the right? 17s are all – everything's gone. Everything is gone. Coming up from Hawaii uh, in most cases. But um, – <clears throat> Yeah, because there's a group of 17s that are up. They were slated to attack the invasion convoy again. But then when they get word that, uh-oh, you know, we've, we've sighted the Japanese carriers, they reroute and, and start. Yeah, a couple of things that come out of that. One, because of the polyglot nature of the air group and the fact that it is composed of Marine aircraft, Navy mm-hmm. aircraft, and Army Air Corps aircraft, um, that all have extremely variable cruising speeds and are launched you know, in one long sequence, um, they are not going to show up at the Japanese carrier force in any sort of an integrated mm. strike package. Mm-hmm. The, the two groups that come in first are going to be uh, the TBFs and the B-26s, and even they are not coordinated in any meaningful fashion. They're coming in in two separate flights. That's one thing that happens. Um, the other is that the Japanese are very quickly aware of the fact that they have not put this place out of business. Um, the strike leader, Tomonaga, uh, sends, a, you know, as soon as he's got his aircraft kind of put back together again, a couple of things he, he realizes. One, the anti-aircraft fire over Midway was intense. And, um, and when they left, it was still intense, which means that we have not put this place out of business. And as they're going to discover when they land this force later in the morning, they've lost 11 aircraft shot down. Uh, another 14 or 15 seriously damaged. Half of the planes in the strike force were hit by anti-aircraft fire. Mm-hmm. So in terms of lost aircraft and write-offs, they lost a quarter of their attack force in the course of seven minutes. Yeah. Um, That's so throwing a lot of lead in the air. Yeah. I mean, uh, American anti-aircraft, even at this point in the war, is nothing to sneeze at. Mm-hmm. So Tomonaga then sends this canned message back to the carrier force at 0700. Uh, kawa, 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 0700. So this is clearly a prepackaged code group that they had sitting in his back pocket that means, yeah, sure enough, we have not put midway out of business and we are going to need a second attack. Second, second strike. Yeah. Yep. So that happens at 0700. You want yeah. to talk about what happened in the, in the air to air fight? 
Yeah, yeah, sure. So, you know, you, you touched on it when the when the Japanese are coming into the island, uh, they're they're hit by Red Parks as fighters. Um, Floyd Parks was his name. Red was his nickname. Um, call sign, whatever you want to call it. He's a Marine Corps aviator. He's a squadron commander for VMF 221. And he's got kind of a uh, half and half squadron. He's got Wildcats, F4, F3s, and he's got F2A3 Brewster Buffaloes. Uh, and like you said, I mean, they, they, they give a fair, fairly decent account of themselves considering what it is and, and who they are and what and who they're attacking here. Um, but by and large, they are a one strike and done. They're, uh, um, they're coming in, they're making one pass if they can get that. If they can get that. And, and then they're getting the hell out of there or they're getting shot down. Parks gets himself, he gets shot down and killed in action. A uh, gentleman that we mentioned in the earlier in, in the last episode, a guy named Bill Brooks, he's flying a Brewster. Um, he comes in, and this is the guy that was resigned to his fate, you know, that he didn't think he was going to see another sunset. Uh, he's comes in and he he does make a high side run. He positions himself. This is his first combat. This is his baptism of fire. He positions himself in such a way that he can make a high side run, I believe, on a vow as it's pulling out of its dive. And he does lay some hits onto one of this onto one of these aircraft. He actually attacks two. And um, whether he shoots it down or not, you know, is anybody's guess. Nobody knows. But as he's pulling out of that attack, he's jumped on by like three or four zeros and they are just shredding him. The Brewster doesn't have the speed to get away. It can't damn sure I'm going to outclimb a zero. And, and you got to remember too, as he's making that high side run, he's diving on the Japanese aircraft. So now he's like, he can't dive away because if he does, he's going to hit, he's going to, you know, go into the damn water. Yeah. Yeah. It, he ain't getting away. So what he does, the only thing, and he's smart enough to realize this, the only way he can get these enemy aircraft off his tail is to fly directly over the landing, the, the tarmac. Mm-hmm. So every gun on that Island, is shooting at him, but it's also shooting at the Japanese aircraft that are trailing him. That's the only way he can get these people off his ass. And with whatever speed is left in that Brewster, he does that very thing. And it and it works. You know, he he is shot up to he's shot to pieces, but he does put the aircraft down. It's it's a total loss, but his hide is saved. You know, he does get to see another sunset. But I always thought when he told me that, I always thought that that was pretty that was pretty damn smart in the heat of the battle to know. I can't shake these cats. They are yeah. going to kill me. And yeah. at this point, he didn't. Have, he wasn't making this as a uh, calculated decision where he says, "I know my airplane can take that um, those hits better than the zero because the <laughs> zero is so vulnerable." No, right. no, no. no. He's, he's just desperate, and he thinks yeah. it's the only way. The only, only way he can save out. his his yeah. his hide is is to come over the top of the island and let the his fellow Marines, hopefully yeah. not shoot him down, but shoot right. the Japanese yeah. down. And that's kind of what happens. Which no. of the marine aviators describe the experience as like being hung on a piece of string while all the zeros, you know, kind of made their passes at it? Oh man, player. I um, can't remember, but I don't recall. I know what you're talking about, but I don't recall. Zero, I don't recall. It was, it was a frightening opponent, very, very mm. fast and nimble. And again, mm. these are extremely experienced Japanese aviators. Mm. Yeah, and they're they're just they're they're shredding those guys. And I mean, after that incident if you want to call it that vmf 221 kind of ceases to exist yeah you know i mean what little aircraft they have that are you know that don't get shot to swiss cheese you know i mean you can count them on one hand yeah 
So they, so they're, and they're, and they're hit every, almost every airplane in their, in their inventory is hit in some way, shape or form. And uh, there are no Brewsters that fly after this. At this point, we're midway is definitely under attack by the American uh, carrier aircraft up in the air. Mm -mm. Not yet. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, they're still far enough away from a potential launch point. You know, as soon as the Americans have actionable intelligence in their hands, uh, Mm -hmm. Fletcher and Spruance, you know, Basically, Fletcher, Fletcher's got his aircraft from Yorktown up doing a search, and mm-hmm. he has positioned uh, Task Force 16 as basically to be his, his shooting arm, you know, for the, for the first strike. And so he basically tells Spruance, take your two carriers uh, to the southwest as rapidly as possible and launch when you can. And as soon as I bring down my morning search planes, I'm going to follow up behind you and, and do the same. Mm-hmm. So the American carriers now are moving to the southwest, trying to get into a launch position, but they're not going to be there. Uh, they, they don't have uh, they don't have precise lo- enough location yet of the Japanese carriers. Also true, and mm-hmm. you know, yeah, okay. So we got some some sighting reports, you know, a little before 0600. But of course, those carriers are going to be the enemy carriers will be moving in the meantime right. before I can mm-hmm. put planes up in the air. Right. So. Meanwhile, you know, back on the Japanese carriers, Nagumo's got to figure out what to do. Um, And he's been endlessly pilloried for the decisions that he makes. And understand that even by this point in the battle, he's kind of behind the eight ball and doesn't even know it. His own scouting plan has fallen apart. He's put up seven aircraft, one of which took off late. Um, and unfortunately, the one that really had the best shot of finding the American carriers, a scout plane from Chikuma, either was hot dog in his route or was flying above the cloud cover and couldn't see anything. But they should have detected the Americans around 0615, and they did not. So, but one could- of the myths is that that plane that took off late, he was he was responsible for the Japanese failing to detect the Americans, right? Yeah, that's, that's Tone number four airplane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, piloted by a guy named Amari. Um, yeah, and he he gets to be the scapegoat for until our book is written, frankly. Although it was Dallas <laughs> Isom, I will say in all fairness, uh, in uh, some of the Naval War College articles that he wrote where we were arguing back and forth, it was Dallas who first pointed out that actually um, Amari must have misflown his route intentionally or he cut his dog leg too soon, but he ends up detecting... Um, the Americans probably 40 to 45 minutes earlier than he should have it if he had actually flown his correct search pattern. So, mm-hmm. but Nagumo doesn't know that yet. We're at 0700, yeah. right? Nagumo's just gotten this message from Tomonaga. There's a need for a second strike. You know, as far as Nagumo knows, I've got my planes up. They haven't seen anything out there in terms of an any, any enemy naval forces. I know too that it's a time honored principle that operational tempo is important. And if there's going to be a second strike against Midway, I should hit them again as rapidly as possible. I've still got half of my aircraft here that are supposedly armed for anti ship operations. Um, but in light of the fact that I haven't seen any Americans, he considers this for about 15 minutes and then he issues orders at 0715. Rearm yourselves for a land attack mission, and you're going to go out and you're going to hit midway later on. So mm-hmm. that's what goes down in 0715. So, yeah. so, so to go back on Numo, Nagumo's decision, there really was no 
decision to make. I mean, he he got word that he had to go or that they should attack the island again. So there are strike. no carriers sighted. So he's like, well, what the hell? I mean, you know, so there really is or shouldn't be any controversy at that point. There shouldn't be. I mean, the, the, the people that say, oh, he disobeyed his order by not keeping his planes. Well, OK, so the alternative then is you're going to wait for Tomonaga and his boys who have lost a quarter of their attack force. Mm-hmm. They're going to come back, you know, at around 0830 or something. We're going to land them. We're going to give them lunch. We're going to refuel and rearm those damaged aircraft. And we're going to put Tomonaga and his boys back up sometime later in the afternoon. And they're going to go hit Midway again. Which would take um, way more than 90 minutes. Yeah. Right. Well, the yeah. reserve strike force are apparently just, you know, sunning themselves on the flight mm-hmm. deck with nothing better to do. I mean, as yeah. we said, uh, Tony and I said in the book, the whole notion is asinine. Of course, you're going to use your second uh, group of aircraft to get right. them again. So let's talk about your book then just for a second before we get back into the fun stuff of the battle. Yeah. It's in, so here's the book, Shattered Sword. Um, this story is about Midway had been written since 1945 and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten and you and John and um, you know, Tony Tully are think uh, are thought of as, you know, kind of like probably the best historians of the battle of Midway, at least from the point of view from the Americans telling the Japanese story in the world right now. And what the heck did you discover that revolutionized or changed the way we're thinking when uh, for a story that's been told for decades yeah. Um, the truth. <laughs> well, I, I just, you know, to, to be humble here, we kind of got lucky. I mean, Tony and I have both been interested in the Japanese Navy since we were kids. And we also got in touch with good people like John Lundstrom, who's like, oh, if you're going to write a battle or a book on the Japanese side of the battle, you got to talk to my buddy Jim Saruk who has translated all of the Japanese air group records for the battle. And that is the key. That was the piece of information that no other historians had before mm. started working on this thing. So the, the problem for the American scholarship was that the Battle of Midway was built on three primary sources from the Japanese side. One is Nagumo's after-action report, and there's a series of interviews that are done of Japanese naval officers after the war, the strategic bombing survey interviews. And then there's Fuchida's book, which came out in the early 1950s. And unfortunately, Fuchida's book is kind of a pack of lies. But nobody had the air group records before. And if you Mm -hmm. have those air group records, you're able to have very detailed information on, you know, when everybody went up. Written contemporaneously as the battle was going on. Exactly. Yeah. And it turns out the written histories didn't agree with the the official Verbal, documents yeah. and records that were being kept as planes were landing and being reloaded. Yeah, that's right? exactly right. So and so that's that had to have been an enormous amount of work to well again we reconcile. Got, yeah. Um we really didn't start getting a hold of and we're sort of fast forwarding here to what's the flight deck controversy when we get to the dive bomber attack. Mm-hmm. Yeah the bottom line is that we benefited tremendously from Jim Sawruck's research. Mm-hmm. Jim's a great guy, but he doesn't want to write a book. He's a researcher, and he was perfectly cheerful to let us use this stuff, um, you know, and and put his his good research out there in the field. And you know, lucky yeah. us. Yeah, and we have Shattered Sword, which is an incredible book, and it's just one of those things that 
you got to go back to over and over again because you keep oh, yeah. discovering well, new things when you read it. I'm like, yeah, what did happen on that morning? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, got, yeah. I got my pretty picture up here over on the screen. Anyway, it, it's right, a lot well, to remember. It, yeah, there's it so many moving parts going on at the same damn time. It's it's it's. I've been studying this event since mm-hmm. I was 12. Right. It's it's hard to keep track of everything. So let's jump back to the battle. At this point, you've got you've got the you know the carrier. They're rearming the reserve. Yep. You know, attack package. Second strike. Yeah. To strike yep. the island because there's no evidence that there are any aircraft carriers and navy ships around. Yep. And we take it from there. So, so just at the time that Nagumo makes this decision that I'm going to rearm my aircraft, lo and behold, the first American planes from Midway show up. Mm-hmm. And that's Bert Ernest and his TBF Avengers and the yep. B-26s come roaring in. Exactly. But they too. But they do like, know that they're land-based aircraft, so he's not second-guessing his decision for the second strike at this point. Yeah. Well, and that's going to become, you know, really, really clear to Nagumo. Um, yeah. When the B-26s show up, I mean, these are twin-engine bombers. It's like, okay, that's clearly coming from Midway. The Japanese cap handles these aircraft very very roughly they shoot down two of the four b-26s they shoot down five of the six tbfs mm-hmm. um it's a massacre and uh, you know bert Ernest's plane is just absolutely shot to pieces mm-hmm. um yeah. harry Carrier, to his dying day he was the radio man gunner had a had a baseball cap mm-hmm. had a little hole right in the in the forehead where he was creased by a 7.7 millimeter bullet from a Japanese zero. It knocked him cold. Uh, he comes to, he is covered with the blood of the turret gunner above him, who's been killed by a cannon shell from a zero, crawls up to the cockpit. Bert Ernest is trying to figure out how to keep this plane in the air because um, all the flaps have been shot away. And they're just about to go in the drink when Ernest realizes, oh, I've still got my trim tabs. I could still make that work. And that gives him enough ability to control the plane that he's able to limp it back at sea level, you know, wave top height back to um, midway. The Americans make no hits as a result of these attacks. Um, Although one of the B-26s, there's dispute over what happens there. Fuchita's account says that it, you know, kamikaze itself and just barely missed the island. I personally have come to believe that that was actually um, one of the B-26s that made a run down the length of Akagi's flight deck and, and got out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, but either way, it was certainly a real eye-opener uh, on Akagi's bridge to have a twin-engine plane pass by the bridge by just a matter of feet. The guy, the the B-26 that did that very action that you're talking about was piloted by a guy named Jim Murray. Murray. Jim Murray, M-U-R-I. Jim Murray uh, lived in Missoula, Montana, I believe it was. And uh, I knew him well. He uh, said that that as they were coming in, you know, because they're dropping their fish or they're trying to drop their fish, and he does so. They're attacked by three or four zeros, I think, are on the back end of that 26. And and it's and and their B twenty six looks much like Bert Ernest's Avenger. It's shot to hell. And at that point, his only option was to pull up because he was about to hit the the bow of Akagi. He was that low. Yeah. Was to pull up and he just low passes like air show style right across the flight deck of Akagi, and I believe it was his port side wingtip missed the bridge by feet. 
you know, by feet. Yeah. And uh, he he does make it back. He he and his crew, most of them are wounded. They're I don't if I remember correctly, and I could be wrong on this. I don't believe anybody in his airplane was killed. Uh, they were all wounded, including himself, the pilot Murray. He was wounded too. Uh, but they get it back. He he ground loops it when he hits uh, when he hits midway. He puts the twenty six down and he ground loops it and, and crawls out of there. Literally crawls out of there. But he mm-hmm. is one of the only survivors. And then Bird, of course, yeah, you know he's uh, he's shot to hell. These guys were heroes, but they had to have known that they didn't have much of an impact. And, you know, no, no. The, yeah, it's hard to say. I don't, I don't really? think they I don't think they did know that because, you know, there, there's reports of from some of the Midway aviators of them hitting the aircraft or the aircraft, the, the ships that they attacked. Of course, they didn't, mm. but they didn't know that, you know, there, right. there, there was, you know, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, when these things are coming in, when these 26s and, and Avengers and then later VMSB 241s with their, their yeah. Vindicators and their SPDs, they're coming in and, and these Japanese ships are shooting at them. So there's a right, lot of, of smoke and tracer fire and yeah. muzzle flashes. And then they're getting hit by zeros and God knows what else. So there's a mass confusion. So, I mean, maybe they hit something. Of course, they didn't. But I mean, to their, you know, you can understand why they may have thought they may have hit something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know, yeah, bottom line is ten planes in, no hits, and only right. two of them get back. So it's just yeah, right. it's really it's really bloody. Right. So um, yeah, so that's about we're at oh seven fifteen now. We're just roaring along here, aren't we? Um, yeah. yeah. So the carriers on the American carriers, you know, the the pilots, like I said, they and the air crew, they're up at 0300, They each out, and then they go into their ready rooms and they just sit there. Mm-hmm. And they're sitting there and they're sitting there and they're sitting there and they get the reports, you know, the Japanese aircraft carriers are spotted and everything else. But it's not until 645 in the morning ish that they finally get the word to man their planes. Now, they've been on Enterprise. They've been told to man their planes twice. Right. And then recalled and said, no, 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 no. Go back. Just hang out for a little bit more. And you can imagine the bladders on these guys, you know, I mean, it's <laughs> dying. Yeah. So they finally get the word at 645 to go man their airplanes. Uh, they do that very thing. They run up to the flight deck. They get in their birds. Now, on Enterprise, um, which is whom I knew most of the guys who flew the, the strikes uh, from, you know, from, from Enterprise, they, uh, the first ones to launch is your CAG. That's McCluskey and his two wingmen. And then you got Scouting 6 is the first uh, squadron, the SBD squadron to launch. And they're launched with 500-pound bombs. And then behind them is bombing six Dick Best's people with thousand pound bombs. And then, well, the fighters are, they're gone. VF six is already gone. And then of course you get VT six, the, the, the almost set of vendors, the devastators are, are the last ones to get off the deck. And it, Spruance decides to launch at seven. So 15 minutes ish after they're given the word to man their airplanes, they, they got to get the hell off of there and get it, get out there in a hurry. And John, you talked about it before Fletcher, who has overall command gives Spruance the word just when you can, you just go and we will, we'll catch up with you. Yep. And and I think, you know, here's an example of, um, you know, Fletcher is a very unselfish commander. He's not trying to micromanage Raymond Spruance. He, even at this point of the battle, he's reasonably confident that Spruance knows what he's doing. And Spruance likewise is leaning on his air guys to say, you know, Hey, when are we going to be in launch range? And let's build a little padding into that because one of the problems the Americans have is 
in order to launch aircraft, they have to turn into the wind, which is taking them away from the Japanese. So they're actually putting more miles between them and where they think the Japanese are going to be during this incredibly protracted launch cycle. Yeah, I mean, we talk we talk about the you know the Japanese were able to put up 108 planes in the course of about 10 minutes. The Americans labor for an hour yep. uh, to put up an equal number of aircraft. Yeah, I was going to say it's the ass opposite of that, and and that it, it's it's, and I refer back to February 1st when Enterprise is you know I I likened her to a conveyor belt where she's launching recover launching all day long. Mm-hmm. It's the complete opposite opposite of that today. Now, Enterprise gets her air group aloft in a relatively quick order, but not 10 minutes. But then they circle the task force forever and they're burning fuel and they're just they're just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And but I mean, what is the expl- is there an explanation for this? I I I'm not the American guy. I'm just the Japanese. Well, well, that's the thing. They're trying to fly a coordinated strike package. Well, they're trying to go, right? They weren't any damn good at it. Yeah, Yeah, they weren't good at it, right? They're trying. And and, I mean, again, you know, I knew that Enterprise is with Hornet, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a mess. It's a mess. Yeah, it's a discombobulated mess. There's a dirtier word for it, but we're not going to use that. Yeah, and Spruance at one point is just like, just... Send just the dial on their way. Just, just go. go. Just go. Yeah. So the, the net result is that you've got three different packages of Enterprise planes up in the air. You've got a group of fighters. You've got the torpedo planes, which go up last. And you've got the dive bombers, which at least are proceeding in two squadron groups. Right. But there's three groups of planes just from Enterprise. Hornet is a mess as well, because what's gone on over there is Mark Mitcher, who is the skipper of the Hornet, we he's, have he's still a captain at this point, and he is an aviator. He is. So an he aviator. should know what he's doing. Yes, he should know what he is doing, and I, there's at least some evidence that he's not real happy with the fact that you know Fletcher and Spruance are in command of these two task forces, both right. of whom are non-aviators. The other thing that got baked into Nimitz's operational plan for the morning is this notion that the Japanese will be operating in two carrier task forces. And it seems that Mitcher took it upon himself without consulting with Spruance to take his entire air group and I'm going to send it searching for that other mythical Japanese carrier task force. So at the end Because they would never operate four carriers altogether, right? They would do it the way we do it. Right. So, yeah, you got some real mirror imaging going on mm. here. But the net result is that Hornet's air group goes up in the air and instead of proceeding to the southwest, actually flies a course almost due west. And this is the, this becomes the flight to nowhere? The infamous flight to nowhere. Okay. Um, and about, I don't know, what, half an hour into that flight, the torpedo plane squadron leader, John Waldron, BT-8's commander, is just absolutely certain that the air group commander, Stanhope Ring, is going the wrong way and has a violent in-air argument. It's rank and subordination. Let's just call it what it is. It is, yeah. On and an open circuit, by the way. On an right. open circuit, you know. Yeah. So you got a lot of these other pilots like, what the hell, you know. And eventually, yeah, the, Waldron takes his entire... The skipper and the CAG are screaming at each other. This yeah. can't be good. Yeah. And Waldron hauls his formation out of you know, the main group, and he goes off to the southwest and essentially flips the bird to Stanhope Ring, um, who then takes the remainder of the dive bombers and the fighters on their merry way off to nowhere. Mm-hmm. So, and 
you for know, better or worse, the torpedo bombers were right, and yes. Waldron finds the carriers. Yes, but it's 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 one of those things that it's infuriating because had Ring either I, I wouldn't he's he's not going to follow a subordinate officer who says you know what up yours I'm out of here he's not going to turn that squadron or, or that formation around. He's looking know. forward to the court martial that's going to come. Absolutely, right. Absolutely, and Ring is a bit of a martinet himself, mm-hmm. and so he's certainly not going to follow a John Baldwin no. having just been you know flipped the bird mm-hmm. in air. Had he done so, though, yeah, um, yeah. Hornet's entire air group would have found the Japanese at about 0917 in the morning. And had things been delivered according to doctrine, Hornet arguably would have knocked out one or probably two of the Japanese carriers. And then, you know, I make the argument in my latest War College article that, you know, Mark Mitcher is responsible for sinking the Yorktown because, um, had Hornet done what it was supposed to do, this whole battle could have been over by lunchtime and the Japanese lose four zip. Mm-hmm. That's yep. not what happened. So we could talk about Spruance's opinion of Mitchell later, but yeah, uh, probably yeah. will. Yeah. Well, so anyway. well, Bill, here, here, here's your moment. At the same time, or roughly thereafter, that the uh, <laughs> that the American aircraft from Midway strike yeah. the Japanese and do nothing. The Japanese uh, fleet is encountered by the USS Nautilus. Yeah. Yes. Lay it on us, man. If this is my moment, do I get to take credit for all the submarines that did extremely well during the yes. war? Yes. Um, good. All right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, these guys are great heroes. Now, they they were Absolutely. not. Uh, again, this is early in the war. And, and for, as background, the, the the interwar submarine force tended to promote very conservative submarine skippers who refrain from getting their submarines sunk by doing dangerous things. And what this did is breed a conservatism in the submarine and submarine leadership that did not serve us well when it became time to be aggressive and to take risks to win the war. Now, I'm not accusing the skipper of Nautilus of being that way. Bottom line is out of position, didn't close. Uh, doctrine said stay submerged during the daytime, uh, don't don't surface. And when you stay submerged, you're lucky if you can do five knots, right? You're normally doing three knots because the periscope creates this big thing called a rooster tail when you go fast, which makes you e- really easy to see. But, you know, so be, by remaining detected, they, they never closed uh, to a position where they can conduct an effective attack. And so this became an issue for all of the submarines. Remember, there was more than one submarine sure. um, in this battle. Uh, only The only one that had anything to do with the outcome was the Nautilus, but not on the way they would have wanted. Yeah. Um, they didn't attack. Uh, they were sighted. They didn't conduct an effective attack. They were sighted, and because of that, a destroyer was left behind mm-hmm. to prosecute the Nautilus. Mm-hmm. Um, the Japanese left this destroyer, chase them down, and, and keep them from interfering with our operations. Because as I wrote decades later in a document called Full Spectrum ASW, it's not necessary to sink the enemy submarines. The only thing you have to do is keep them from interfering with what you want to do. And the Japanese understood this, and that's what they were going to do with the Nautilus. So but, there's actually some controversy um, here because uh, over the years, Arashi, the destroyer mm-hmm. Arashi, uh, 
is credited for having held down Nautilus's head during this time. There's some Japanese sources that say, no, it isn't Arashi. Arashi's a Desdid leader. They're not mm. going to, they're going to designate another Tin Shuriko and do yeah. that because we got, we got command issues to deal mm. with. So don't know what ship it was, but yeah, one Japanese destroyer is keeping Nautilus and Commander Brockman's head down during this time. But the effect of that, whether the attack, and, and this is the important part here, is the attack by Nautilus, by Brockman's people, was not successful. However, because that they were there, and that destroyer, whichever one it may have been, was detailed to deal with this pest, yeah. that plays a huge role in yeah. what is going to, I mean, it's, it's yeah. this is massive. So while the yeah. attack isn't successful... <laughs> whether they knew it or not yeah we're brockman that, in the sh- in the sub play a yeah. massive role in this event the destroyer decides it needs to skedaddle and get back with daddy and the and the carrier force and so it's high tail in it at flank speed wait we're gonna get there we'll <laughs> see this destroyer again yeah. exactly indeed indeed so uh around 840 0840 the american attacks for the moment cease what is Nagumo's timetable looking like now through all these attacks? And there's a lot of them. You know, there's yeah, eight, there's okay, so VT-8, the B-26s, VMSB. VT-8 hasn't shown up yet. So let's Oh, not VT-8. It. I'm sorry. I'm, I meant uh, VT-8 detached. My bad. Yeah, right. Okay. My bad. Yeah. My bad. Nagumo's got a real problem he's got to figure out here. I mean, he, he okay. So at, he's made this decision at 0715. I'm going to rearm my aircraft. Half an hour later. 0745, lo and behold, Tone's number four scout plane comes back and says, hold the phone. There are American ships out here. I've just seen some. And, you know, that is not what they expected to hear. And Nagumo immediately, in clear language, fires back to this aircraft, determine ship types. Because I need to know if these are carriers or not. Okay. Um, And also, as soon as he does that, he sends the word down to the hangar decks, hold everything, switch back to um, ship weapons again. Yeah. Yeah. So now think about what a mess the hangars are at this point. You know, you've either, we've gotten through the first third of the aircraft, torpedoes off, bombs on, or maybe we're somewhere in the second shoe tie, second third, you know, nobody knows. Um, the situation, the hangar decks is just kind of opaque at this point, but we know it's a confused mess. Mm-hmm. Now Nagubo's got to figure out, okay, am I going to wait to recover my morning strike, which I know is going to have damaged aircraft that are going to be running low on fuel? Do I wait and bring them down first? Because I haven't got a fully armed strike in reserve at this point. You know, I could just go with my dive bombers on Carrier Division 2 and hold back on the torpedo planes and send them out when they're arming. Again, a lot of moving parts. Doctrine says that they want to go with a full meal deal, if you will, in that we'd like to attack with both dive bombers and torpedo planes at the same time. Their prop, you know, that presents the enemy with a multi-altitude attack that's much harder to repel. Something we would have liked to have done too, if we had yeah, the absolutely. capability to actually execute it that way. And so eventually. Nagumo ends up making the decision that okay, I'm going to recover my morning strike force first. By the time I get them down, I should have my torpedo planes now rearmed, uh, and then I'll put up my reserve birds and I'll go ahead and hit the Americans with a real alpha strike. 
in retrospect, um, it probably would have been better for Nagumo to simply launch everything he had, armed or not, just to get it the hell out of the hangars. So that would have meant going with the dive bombers from Carrier Division 2 and probably a bunch of unarmed or semi-armed aircraft from Carrier Division 1. But again, um, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Nagumo ends up making the decision that is doctrinally congruent. And I think people need to understand that um, and, mm-hmm. and also understand just how thin these playbooks were at this point in the war. I mean, you know, no one's fought a lot of carrier battles before. Right. Japanese doctrine isn't a real thick document. Um, so that's what Nagumo ends up doing is, is deciding to hold the phone uh, until he can get that reserve force fully armed. Bottom line is, um, he makes the decision, I'm going to recover my morning strike force. Mm-hmm. The Americans go away starting at about 0830, 0840, and he starts bringing those Tomonaga's birds down beginning at 0853. There's no question that as soon as they're all down in the course of about a half an hour, he is going to want to start spotting his flight decks with his reserve package to go after the Americans. But lo and behold, as soon as the last of his planes comes down at 0917, Lookout starts saying, uh, we've got another American attack coming in, and this is the torpedo planes from the Hornet, VT-8. Mm-hmm. So VT-8's coming in, <clears throat> not VT-8 detached, but VT-8. These are the guys from the flight deck. Yeah. And and they received this a similar fate, actually worse, worse, than anything that's coming from Midway so far. It's just a horrific massacre. Uh, these are slow, unescorted um tbds mm-hmm. and the japanese cap that's up at this point contains some real trigger men. I mean, these are experienced ncos and they just shoot this squadron into pieces 15 planes in 15 planes down one guy left alive in the water it's but enterprise help me understand this enterprise launched first mm-hmm. and then vt8 went along with stanhope ring mm-hmm. on the flight to nowhere mm-hmm. at, before they broke off yeah and they still got there before any other Americans. Yeah, that's a he, he, he basically had a he made a beeline for the Japanese fleet. Yeah, it came right to him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's he, almost like he, he had knew a where they were. Yeah. And and the Enterprise aircraft didn't do that. Well, well some of them did. VT six is what John twenty minutes, ten minutes behind VT eight. So I mean, they're okay. And again, you got to remember. And this is this is where it just gets screwed to hell. Mm-hmm. Is that Enterprise is. They launched and, and formed up as a unit, and then they just kind of just drag away. Wade McCluskey, God bless him, has got the throttle of the firewall, and these SBDs are cooking, and they're leaving these TBDs behind, yet the TBDs still make it to the Japanese fleet before the SBDs ever do. Yeah, that's because it, it's yeah, weird. McCluskey's guys fly further to the southwest and miss right. the Japanese force. In any case... So, yeah, what happens now, starting at, you know, 0920 for the next, you know, hour or so, you've got uh, every 20 minutes, there's an American carrier aircraft uh, attack coming in, and they're all torpedo planes. VT-8 at 0920, VT-6 from Enterprise comes in at about 0940 and is treated nearly as roughly as yeah. VT-8. Um, there's two, two or three that survive? Three, I think. Three, yeah. yeah. It's, and then VT-8 is just gay? Yeah, okay. so we've got one guy left alive in the water here um, who famously, you know, makes claims later on that he sees all of the subsequent events of the morning. Um, 
I think there's a great deal of skepticism among yeah, someone who's spent a, a career on a submarine with maybe trying to keep one foot of periscope above the water. I know what your, that height of eye allows you to see from in terms of range on the ocean. It's only maybe eight, eight to 10,000 yards, maybe five miles. Yeah. And so Gay had to be like within shooting range of these aircraft carriers to see all everything that was going on. Well, and if what he said he was true. I mean, you know, he drops mm-hmm. a torpedo on the Soryu uh, mm-hmm. and then makes a beeline to try to get out of there and is shot down, it seems, very, very Pretty quickly. quickly. So yeah. he goes in the drink and he, he probably is in the middle of Kido Butai in some fashion. Kido mm-hmm. Butai at this point has been attacked numerous times by B-17s among others. So the Kido Butai's formation has gotten steadily more dispersed as the morning goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems that they witnessed the Americans or the, the Japanese bringing aboard some of their aircraft on a carrier. It had to have been either a Kagi or Soryu because we, again, we had the Japanese flight mm-hmm. right to know which carriers were recovering planes. But by the time the, the big stuff is going to happen later in the morning, Kido Butai has moved well oh, away God. to the north. I mean, we're talking 12, 15 miles away. To the mm-hmm. north. They're, they're over the horizon, pretty much. He couldn't have seen them from that height of eye. Okay, and I mean you know, the man's floating in the water with a, you know, under a seat cushion, under a seat yeah. cushion because he right. doesn't want to be seen by exactly, right, right, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. So I mean, at best, his head's popping up. I mean, it's the, the height of your head, you know. I mean, yeah. it, that's it. if there if there are no swells, if there are no right? swells, if there are swells. You'll you'll see something every two to three seconds, yeah. and so then you then you can't see him. Then you can see him. Yeah. Then, Swells affect periscopes too. Carriers, you know, by the time we get to like 10 o'clock in the morning or thereabouts, at best, he might see masts or something like that. They're Mm. well past hull down on him anyway. Mm -hmm. But he would have seen the explosions and the smoke and 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 he would have known a lot was going on. Yeah. And that, you know, that's a little later here. But, you know, we, we, uh, if we rejoin um, uh, McCluskey and Mm. the Enterprise dive bombers, I mean, by about 9.45 or so in the morning, they show up to where they think they're going to find the Japanese fleet, and there is nothing mm-hmm. there. You know, they, it's just puffy white clouds and blue sea as far as the eye can see, and yeah. the fuel gauges are running down. It's not looking good. Mm-hmm. And McCluskey makes a very intelligent decision to start doing a box search um, and makes his first leg off to the north and lo and behold, at about 10 o'clock uh, in the morning, sights a Japanese destroyer. And mm-hmm. it is the destroyer that was holding Nautilus's head down during this entire time. And McCluskey, again, being a very wise man, reasons that, you know, if that destroyer is going at a high rate of speed in that direction, I think I <laughs> Maybe there's something there. <laughs> destroyer, destroyers almost never operate independently. That's correct. Yeah. So he follows that destroyer home. And yeah, at about 10, 10.05 in the morning, lo and behold, there are ships showing up in his windscreen. Mm. At the very the- same time, Yorktown's package is coming in from the southeast. They too are sighting smoke from all this anti-aircraft fire that's ongoing during these torpedo plane attacks. And so Yorktown's package, which is a squadron of dive bombers, squadron of torpedo planes, and Jimmy Thatch's six F6F or F4Fs, 
trailing along uh, medium cover. All inventor of the thatch weave, as I recall. We're just about to debut that. So, yeah. yeah, the net result is that by 10 in the morning, the Japanese carrier force has been sighted by two separate groups of American aircraft, neither of whom have any idea that they are in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And they are now approaching the Japanese from the southwest and the southeast at different altitudes. And this is before the days of radar. Um, we have broken cloud cover here. Uh, and the first thing that the Japanese see is Yorktown's torpedo planes, VT-3, coming in from the southeast. And that has the effect of sucking all of the Japanese combat air patrol like a magnet down into the southeast attack vector. And that's going to leave things pretty much wide open for the dive bombers. So on that I, note, though, I mean, VT-6, or what is credited, well, they, they were they were lost at this, at this point. Yep. But they were credited for sucking the cap down to a low altitude, thereby saving other. Yeah, that's that's the the myth that oh, you know, the sacrifice of the torpedo planes was tragic, but they you know did this thing, and actually yeah. they didn't do that because because the, the, the performance character an hour before. Yeah, I mean VT mm-hmm. was completely destroyed by about oh nine thirty seven. The dive okay. bomber attack that's going to destroy Kita Butai happens at ten twenty. Mm-hmm. Zero can climb from zero to 15,000 feet in like, I don't know, seven minutes or something like that. So, you know, the zeros had plenty of time to regain altitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, what the torpedo plane attacks did was they took time off the clock. They prevented Nagumo from spotting his own flight decks because I don't want to be putting my own aircraft up on a flight deck. One, when my ship is maneuvering violently. Absolutely, trying to avoid those torpedoes. You know, that's ugly. And B, you know, fully uh, fueled up aircraft on my flight deck, it it would just take one of these American, you know, yahoos to come in and scrape my flight deck and holy crap. Yeah, Yeah, it doesn't require a bomb, just requires strafing, which is easier. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the bottom line is that the Gumo has never had the window of opportunity, that 40-minute chunk of time that he needs to get that group of planes up on the flight deck. Mm-hmm. I, I, w- I want to go back to, to McCluskey's decision here. And this is something that I've harped on for years and years and years and years. And this is something when I was there at the World War II Museum as a historian for 15 years, I, I tried to drive into people's heads how important this decision is and was. This is really the only experienced commander you have in the air right now is Clarence Wade McCluskey Jr. He's the only one. In terms of air group commanders. Right, yeah. yeah. He's the only guy with any kind of experience at all. And, you know, when he goes to the supposed point of interception and there's nothing there, he is fully aware that the 31 other SBDs behind him are running low on fuel. He's aware of this. Um, he could also. I mean, yeah. Well, that was a is dire. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's a heavy if it's a heavy heavy decision that he has to make here, because he knows that if he continues to search too far, a lot of these more guys, than half of these planes ain't coming home. And and I mean, you know, the chances of finding them out in the middle of the water are slim to none. Yeah. And he takes the ultimate gambler's risk here, in my opinion, and says the hell with it. I've got the the beef in this formation to kill anything if I can find it. Right. And I'm going to keep on going. 
And I I knew guys like Tony Schneider who were way back in the back of the formation who are constantly jockeying throttle to keep up with, because I mean, it's, it's like a whip, you know, a formation, the guys at the front are using less fuel, but the guys in the back are using twice as much. And he consequently runs out of fuel as he sees (laughs) Keaton. But, but I mean, they're, 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 they're running out of gas. Lou Hopkins and bombing six. He was, he knew he was running out of gas. Dusty Cleese, who's one, two, three, four, five, six planes behind Wade McCluskey. He was in far better situation. Don Hoff in the rear seat of Dexter's plane. He's in better situation, but those guys way in the back, they were in dire straits and they keep on going. And it's, it's, I remember, uh, you know, once they see the, the, the destroyer, nobody attached the significance to it except for Wade McCluskey. Mm-hmm. seemingly yeah. because even dusty cleese who had been in combat you know he he was a wise pilot he saw the plane he saw the, the destroyer and he's like bfd it's a destroyer <laughs> yeah, right. we're here yeah. to kill carriers not destroyers yeah and I, I think that's sort of a totally agree um you know one of the huge decisions of the battle is mccluskey making that decision it's a it's a it was a great decision yeah. Um, the other thing that sort of brings home, it's really hard for us in this day and age to get our heads around just how primitive the navigational aids were in these aircraft this time. I mean, you know, you got your dashboard compass, you got a little paper map the size of, you know, yep. nothing that's like strapped to your knee. You got a pencil. Mm-hmm. And you're yeah. reading, you're reading waves. Yeah, you're reading the waves. Yeah, yeah, they they had a chart. Each pilot had a chart. And you could read the wave tops as to which way the wind was blowing. I mean, it was speed. it was primitive. Wind speed, yeah, yeah, it was primitive yeah. to say the Something least. Something I've said in a number of my lectures, you know, <laughs> in a day and age where you know most of us can't get to the grocery store without Siri whispering in our ear. You know, it's uh, <laughs> pretty tough, right? During that, the, the the theory is, you know, of course, you know, McCluskey breaks doctrine. He was supposed to go. He should have attacked. Yes. He and Scouting Six should have attacked Akagi, or uh, yeah, Akagi. Akagi. And then, and then bombing six should have gone after Kaga. And the theory is, is there was a radio. Basically, there were two people talking at the same time yeah. on the radio. Dick Best and uh, Wade McCluskey were speaking to each other at the same time. And nobody heard what the hell it was they were supposed to hear. Because right. Dusty Cleese said, I remember him telling me, he said he heard fragments of Earl. You f-, All he heard was, Earl, you follow me down from uh-huh. McCluskey. And that was talking to scouting sixes skipper earl gallagher right of course draws first blood but that dive you know here you got all these guys setting up this is the the pinnacle of their career and the first four guys miss (laughs) well and you know some of that is also in in accordance with with doctrine i mean doctrine says that we're only going to get one hit out of six and pretty much what we get Mm -hmm. um but yeah, before we dive, though, we should just say that the the state of the Japanese carriers at this time, and there, there was a myth yeah. that was promulgated for years and years and years by Mitsuo Fujita that, um, you know, when the American dive bomber attack comes in starting at about 1022 in the morning, that the Japanese have now lifted their entire strike force up on the flight decks. They're just minutes away, baby, from, you know, taking off and clobbering the Americans with their own counterattack. That's how close it was. It was this close, baby. <laughs> um, and unfortunately for, for Fuchida's account, what the Japanese air group records tell us is that there's no way that that could have happened because the Japanese were recovering combat air patrol fighters 
uh, on Akagi, they recover a, a show tie of three of those guys at 10.10 in the morning, which is only 15 minutes before Akagi is fatally bombed, uh, which means that there was no way that they could have gotten the strike force up on the flight deck and warmed up and ready to go. Right. So the situation on the Japanese carriers at this point is pretty much the same as it's been for the last hour and a half. We're looking for that window of opportunity to bring our, our planes up. They may have started bringing up some of the dive bombers in Carrier Division 2. Um, that's not clear in the, in the scholarship at this point. But basically, the Japanese are caught pretty much with their pants down. And when, you guys, when you guys encountered that bit of data, how many times did you go over it until you convinced yourself that this history that had been written for 50-plus years was wrong? Yeah, I mean, there, there was some of that. You know, we had to be really, really careful. Um, and the, the tiebreaker, frankly, was when we became aware that there were some things about Fuchita's account that just didn't jibe with what the air group records were telling us. We sent mm-hmm. letters off to Japanese historians that we had gotten to know during this time period. This was three years, four years into the project. And I send off this letter and I'm, you know, I'm really careful because I don't want to point fingers at Fuchita and call him a liar. But, you know, can you help me out understand what's going on here? Because I don't quite get it. Letters go out, letters come back. One of the letters from me, this Japanese guy, starts out to understand why Fuchida's book is a pack of transparent lies. <laughs> <laughs> you know? so, Didn't miss his words, did he? Yeah, he was not mincing his words. Um, basically, what's going on there is, you know, the Japanese are going to lose four aircraft carriers in this battle. And when they go home, there's going to be a little explaining that has to go on. Absolutely. And, uh, um, Fuchida's book is, you know, he's kind of the front man of this cabal of first air fleet officers that are trying to think up, you know, can we come up with a story that doesn't make us look quite so bad? Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's nicer to portray us as having been this close, baby, you know, and then the gods mm-hmm. will come in and take it all away mm-hmm. from us rather than, yeah, our scouting plan was kind of screwed up and, you know, mistakes were made. So right. anyway, that's what's happening. <clears throat> so as the SBDs roll, and they, and they, for the most part, they do roll over into their dives. Um, this is something big, and it's something that's in your book that I I refer to often, John. It's is that when the SBDs and the the vindicators came in in the morning from VMSB two forty one, they did a glide bombing attack, but both both groups, and it was very clear that the pilots and the aircraft were underperforming. Yep, you know, not doing what they needed to do. However, these guys are pros and they're yeah. coming in at 75 80 degree dives yes and they're falling like a rock yeah. onto these japanese aircraft carriers the first guy to draw blood is scouting sixes skipper earl gallagher or yeah. at least that's the thought is yeah. the first guy to draw blood is earl gallagher he, he plants a bomb on kaga towards her stern does he not i think that's right yep ish yeah. right ish. Yeah. crew accommodations actually on that right. then he yeah. set a bunch of mattresses and things afire Everything on a carrier is flammable. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, Even exactly. World War II carrier. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, the bottom line in for, for Kaga is she's just on the receiving end of a double-barreled attack. You know, she should only be getting one squadron coming down on her. She's getting the better part of two. Mm-hmm. Um, Kaga is not a particularly handy vessel. You know, she's a converted battleship, and she, I think, I, as we put in the book, you know, she turns like an oxen before the plow. Um, you know, so this ship doesn't have a, a prayer in hell, uh, mm-hmm. avoiding, you know, 
two dozen dive bombers coming down on her. Although, as you say, you know, the first four bombs miss her. Right. But when they do start to hit her, I, they just blow her to hell and gone. Well, the, the, the one that, 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 that really, at least, again, the, the thinking is the one that, according to your numbers in, the, in, in your book and the, and the guys that I knew, the one who really puts the first real hard lick on Kaga is Dusty Cleese. Yeah. He aims for the 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 national emblem, the, the national ensign on the bow of the flight deck or near the, the rising bow. sun. Yeah. yeah. And and he Hinamaru, they call it. Yeah. The Hinamaru, yeah. right. And, and Hinamaru. he puts his bomb from all accounts right at the edge of that sucker. I mean, he just barely misses hitting dead center. It does make and a nice target. It does. And that bomb, if from what I understand, obviously it penetrates a 500 pounder, penetrates the flight deck and explodes in the hangar deck yep. amongst those airplanes in that enclosed hangar deck. And it just wreaks havoc. Yeah. Yeah. I One of the images that I've had since I was a child is, you know, what would it have been like to be on the hangars of those carriers when those bombs come? Mm, you don't want to be there. Deck above you. you hopefully it was quick. Um, but yeah, I mean, these, these hangars are packed chock-a-block with aircraft that are fully fueled uh, the fueling system is in operation and in a lot of cases there's extra ordnance you know there are torpedoes that were on these birds in the morning but they didn't have time to stow below and so they're sitting by the side of the you know over on the bulkheads yeah yeah you know yeah. it's it's just is a catastrophe um it's something that, that i thought about as a you know as 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 i've been going through this for years and years and years when you're a kid and you have firecrackers and you nice. take a, a little black cat and you light it and you fling it in the air and it goes pow, you know? Yeah. And then I'm you're, that is. well, well then you're a kid and, you know, being a boy like myself and I was growing up, I wanted to destroy things. So what do you do is you take that black cat and you stick it down a beer can yeah. and then you light it. And what does it do? Boom. You know, it's significantly larger or at least louder and more violent explosion, even from that little bitty old firecracker. Now imagine that with, one, yeah. two, three, four, five, six, five hundred pound bombs. Right. It was and a big pipe bomb. These hangers are enclosed. Enclosed. Like no place for the vapor to escape. Exactly. And nowhere for blast over pressure to go either. I mean, American right. carriers had, you know, doors along the side. Uh, that like garage doors. Yeah. Designed mm. blow out in the case of an explosion. The Japanese haven't got that. So. Mm. Yeah, it's like putting, you know, a 500-pound bomb into a beer can. It just blows these things to pieces. Sides down, you know, anybody that's on that flight deck. Um, in Kaga's case, ruptures fuel mains and creates a situation very akin to what happens to Franklin later on in the war. Um, so you've got high temperatures, rapidly uh, vaporizing aviation fuel, which within about four to five minutes after the initial attack creates an enormous fuel air explosion on board Kaga. It just, you know, there were American aircraft that were exiting after mm -hmm. this attack that, you know, saw this explosion and were like, well, the ship would just disintegrate. And that's not true. But from their perspective, you know, how could anything survive an explosion right. of that magnitude? Right, so, right. Yeah, Kaga's just, they stopped counting. That No one knows how many bombs she was hit by. Because again, these scout planes coming down with a 500 pound bomb, they also have two 100 pounders right. strapped on the wings and getting hit by a hundred pounds of TNT isn't exactly a walk in the park either. God knows how many bombs hit Kaga. She's yeah. just 
just devastated. Yeah. Real, um, you know, surprise for the morning is, of course, okay, Cog is getting hit with essentially two squadrons of planes, but Akagi, um, you know, isn't getting anybody's loving, helpful, you know, spoonfuls until Dick Best, who's the commander of Bombing Squadron Six, has just gotten his dive spoiled by Gallagher and the guys coming down in front of him. He pulls up, grabs two of his wingmen out of their dive. So he's got a grand total of three planes now and recognizes that Akagi is getting off scot-free, and that will not do. Mm-hmm. And it's important to understand the implications here. If Akagi does get off scot-free, that means that her torpedo plane squadron, which is manned by Commander Murata, who's the best torpedo plane pilot in the Navy, you know, they're going to be added into the mix uh, later this afternoon for counter-strike. So it's very important to put Akagi out of business. He goes and hustles over. Um, he, he doesn't know that though, right? No, yeah. he doesn't know it at all. <laughs> all he knows is that he's got There's this carrier and yeah, nobody's carrier, attacking. And I've got the situational awareness to recognize mm-hmm. that someone's got to hit that damn carrier because it was supposed to be his job. And now I guess it's mine. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he goes over and attacks her. He's not able to go into a, into a, a sequential dive. They come down in a Vic of three planes. Um, and if you look at the way that the, the, comes down it's the center plane that almost certainly hits that ship and that's dick best because mm. he was a consummate pilot i mean he, mm. he was one of the best day you know damn pilots in the navy and yeah he just nails kagi with one one thousand pound bomb right in the middle elevator goes right into the into the fueled aircraft there and yeah that's that's pretty much it for akagi yeah. And then somehow, according to the movie, magically lands on the air, on the carrier thirty minutes after he would have run out of fuel. Yeah, that's so. amazing. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, really to the to the north, you know, Yorktown's planes are doing their thing. BT three is coming in, going after Hear You is not successful. Uh, takes very heavy casualties in the process. But then uh, VB three comes around, loops around, attacks Soryu out of the northeast. A full squadron against that carrier ends up putting three bomb hits, 1,000-pound bomb hits, neatly spaced. Yeah, they walk them down. Yeah, right down the middle of the flight deck. And the middle of those two bombs apparently penetrates not only through the two hangar decks, but into the um, the space between the hangars and the engineering spaces. And it is just, it is a knife through her heart. Her engines go offline right now. And she starts drifting to a halt. She's immediately without power and a fire from stem to stern. So in the course of five minutes, you've completely KO'd uh, three of these aircraft. There. Three quarters of the attacking air uh, of the Japanese. And it's, it's, it's such a, <clears throat> I'm not going to say it's a miracle because it not. isn't, it isn't because it takes skill but there's a lot of luck involved. There's a lot of luck. Lot of luck. Uh, yeah, I wasn't going to say I wasn't going to say that, side, but there is luck. Yep. But it takes a lot of skill, you know. I mean, you know, people have said, "Oh, it was a miracle we hit those carriers." No, it isn't. It, it it's not a miracle at all. And when you got guys like Dusty Cleason, you got guys like Dick Best, James Dexter, Earl Gallagher, uh, Max Leslie, it's sure. not luck. That is skill. These these are the these are the cream of the crop for the United States Navy. Yep. You talk about Murata, you talk about um, Tomonaga and people like that. These are the cream of the crop of the U.S. Navy right here. And they did what they were trained to do, and they did it very, very, very well. Yep. Very well. 
And it's 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 a it's a tribute to them that it was turned out the way it did. It really did. I mean, was it luck that everybody kind of arrived on the scene at the same time? Yes, for sure. Yes, it was. But you can make the argument too that even if the Japanese had seen uh, Enterprise's squadrons coming in, they weren't getting away. Hell of a lot that there was going to be able to do about it. Um, you know, once a dive bomber has gone into its dive, as we say in the book, it is an insuperable weapon. Statement. It's yeah. ballistic. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. the yeah. fire control arrangements and the anti-aircraft guns of the time just not going to catch it. To do with a dive bomber, it's moving mm-hmm. so fast, it's changing altitude so quickly that you know you've only got about a fifteen to twenty second engagement window on this thing. And Maybe. It's- 250 knots that's a very very hard target to hit and and you got and and what what the japanese are facing too in terms of of aircraft this is in my opinion next to the f6f hellcat this is probably the finest carrier borne aircraft of the united states navy's inventory in the entire world war ii era which is the sbd douglas dauntless dive bomber i mean this thing was designed to do this particular mission and it did it with utter precision yeah. And and I mean, it's great you point. talk. Oh, yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, my favorite. But I mean, you talk about, you know, the, the dives and a Dauntless or any dive bomber, but especially a Dauntless. You got guys that are coming down at 75 and 80 degrees. I mean, that's or more nearly <laughs> or more. Yeah, for instance, for instance, a thousand, ten thousand foot yeah. roller coaster and you've got your back seater. You know, uh, rotate a seat so he's facing forwards because yeah. <laughs> we can well, deal with the G's as they pull out. So, so, so a lot of them did not because they were expecting combat air patrol. So, oh. like Don Hoff, who's a rear seater in Scouting Six, he was facing backwards. He's riding backwards the whole way. Yeah. They had an altimeter yep. on that part of the SBD where he could. And his job was to hold the mic, yep, and count off. You know, Altitude. eleven. 12 or, or back, back other way around, you know, 14, yeah. 13 down. And each second yeah. is a thousand feet. Yeah. And, you know, they're dropping it between 1400 and 1100 feet. It basically depended on how long the pilot wanted to, you know, how, how big his balls were. Let's, let's be real. And as he's going down way down. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. As Dexter Hoff's pilot uh, is going down. This is Dexter's baptism of fire as it is Hoff's. He's going down and he goes down at a 90 degree angle and he actually rolls the SPD onto its back. He's inverted. He's inverted diving on this damn thing. And it's throwing negative G's in the rear seat of the SPD. I remember Don saying that he's sitting there counting off the altitude and he's watching the two ammunition belts for the a and M two thirty calibers Whoa, coming out. He said they look like a couple of cobras. They were coming out the ammo cans, and he's slapping them back in the in the can with one foot and one hand, and he's counting off the altitude. And as he pulls out, <clears throat> uh, Dexter actually kind of blacked him out a little bit because he pulled out so hard. Yeah, you're talking seven, eight, nine Gs without a G suit. Yeah, and as he pulls out, the first thing you know when he comes to, he sees is Kaga, and she's just boom, 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 boom. And all of a sudden he hears his pilot hears this horrible noise, like something like like they're getting shot. And Dexter apparently, you know, got on the intercom and said, what in the hell is that? And it was the ammunition flapping against the side of the Dauntless. And they were beating his belts were beating the crap out of the side of the airplane. So he had to hurry up and get him back in the airplane, put him back in the can so he could fend off the zeros coming down. So, I mean, this is chaos going down through there for every pilot. And they still managed to do what they're what they did. 
that also helps explain, though, why a lot of the aviator accounts that come out of this don't necessarily jive. I mean, for years and years and years, you know, Yorktown's guys were like, oh, we never attacked Soryu. That was a little carrier. We got, you know, Kaga or one of the other ones. So you're getting shot at. You're on this roller coaster. There's a lot of kabooming going around. Mm-hmm. It's really tough to keep. It's a mess. It's a mess. Well, we're, we're starting to run along. So let's let's fast forward. Let's fast forward. Um, Enterprise and Yorktown land their strikes. Uh, Hear you, the only survivor, launches a strike against the last known report of an American aircraft carrier, which of course is dun, 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 the Yorktown. Yorktown. Uh, and they come in twice. Yes. First first attack is uh, their dive bomber squadron under a guy named Kobayashi. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a, another very experienced aviator, and they deliver a real hurting uh, to Yorktown. Um, but in the course of that attack, uh, they are shellacked by first fighters and anti-aircraft, um, fire on their way down. So yeah. they, they deliver a number of pretty bad hits to Yorktown and had her fuel lines not been secured, you know, I think she would have burned to the water line too. Um, well, they put her down in the water too. Lesson they, learned at Coral Sea, was it? I'm sorry? Was that a lesson learned at Coral Sea? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, carbon dioxide and the fuel lines to keep the Japanese didn't learn that lesson. It was good for us. So so when Kobayashi is is beating feet and he's going back to hear you, he turns around and he sees Yorktown. She's not dead in the water yet, but she's drifting to a stop. Yeah, he thinks he's knocked her out. He believes he's killed her. Yeah. So he gets back. He lands. Um and then um they're getting ready on. with what they've got left okay so you know we've just lost three of our aircraft carriers you know the grand total yeah. of strike planes that we have left to our name at this point is just here use um so they've got one refugee torpedo plane from akagi they've got nine birds torpedo planes on here you they got Tomonaga's bird has got a hole in one of the fuel tanks and doesn't have the range to get out back although he probably did anyway they go in for a second attack later on in the afternoon. They're told to look for uh, a, an undamaged American carrier. And lo and behold, in the interval between the dive bomber attack and Tomonaga's attack, Yorktown's damage control is good enough that they can get her back up to speed. And so Tomonaga ends up going after uh, Yorktown. Yorktown. Yeah. And that, that that's something I want to talk about in our next episode because we, we don't have the time to do it today. But uh, damage control, the D.C. parties on Yorktown, Worked a damn near miracle. They really did. And I mean, had it not been for that torpedo attack, Yorktown would have made it back to Pearl Harbor. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. And and, and she would have, who knows what the rest of the carrier battles mm-hmm. of 42 would have looked like with two experienced, you know, Enterprise and Yorktown in at Guadalcanal. But she didn't. Yeah. Uh, she comes in, they take how many torpedo hits, John? Two? Two. Two. Yeah. And, and that, and that, that eventually that is what really knocks her out she's not sunk she's missing and she has to be abandoned and that means Fletcher's got to go over the side as well um so yeah she's she's out of the fight at this point and Fletcher you know very much to his credit again a very uh, unselfish gentleman you know hands come out off the spoons yeah spruance is like you know what are your orders and and fletcher's like uh we'll conform to your movements in other words you got the ball you're doing good you know keep going son yeah um very nimitz like i might say yeah (laughs) hear you during this time 
uh, is trailing along in the wake of Nagumo. Nagumo has moved mm-hmm. his flag off of Akagi onto a light cruiser. He's gathered up with surface forces he has because he's a torpedo guy. And he's like, well, the only way I can turn this thing around is to create some sort of a surface fight. Mm-hmm. So he's charging the Americans with his surface forces, trying to bridge that physical gap. Here you, under Yamaguchi, uh, the commander of Carrier Division 2, basically trails in her wake the entire afternoon and closes the range as well, which is just ridiculous and stupid. And I'm sorry, I'm just going to call it like it is. If you are one carrier and you're up against what has to be two enemy carriers, um, you want to be putting as much distance between you and the enemy as possible. Yes, I want to counterpunch, but I want to do it from a distance because when my aircraft goes into an attritional spiral that I can't get out of, I want to be close to the exit so that I can tip my hat and ride into the sunset. That is not what the Japanese do. Mm-hmm. And the result is that, you know, the range is very, very close. And once mm-hmm. the Americans recover their aircraft and are able to put up additional scouting forces, you know, it's just a matter of time before they're going to find here you when they do. And they still have, you know, 60 operational dive bombers by the late, afternoon and they put up another strike from uh enterprise and hornet go out looking for hear you uh and they find her around supper time and hit her with four bombs yeah uh, they 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 lay waste and it's mostly this not all of the same guys that took part in the morning operation but it's a lot of them yeah uh mccluskey gets hit physically yeah. like he gets hurt in the dive well probably on the pullout from uh the kaga attack because they do get attacked by uh by some combat air patrol mccluskey does and so he gets regardless of this he gets hit he does not lead the strike in on here you earl gallagher yes. does and um he's going with um what was the i can't think i just drew a blank the yorktown um is it bottomley shumway dewitt shumway shumway thank you yeah, DeWitt Shumway is he leads uh, Yorktown's group in there because Max Leslie had to put his airplane down in the water. Correct. He, and as did his uh, XO, yeah, because they ran out of juice. And Yorktown's and they, group, but not off of Yorktown. Say again? Not off, not off of Yorktown, though. Correct. Yeah, right. being right. launched from yeah. Yeah, Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they all come home. And, and Dick Best goes out as well. And mm-hmm. yeah, so we've got an occasion here where we have two pilots from the American carriers, Dick Best and Dusty Cleese, that both nail two Japanese carriers during this afternoon. Right. Um, this is going to be Dick Best's last mission because his, right. his uh, lung oxygen, disease. Yeah, he gets. Uh, it was actually a rebreather system, I think it was on those airplanes. Right. And then it was a caustic chemical that would remove the carbon so, dioxide. Yeah. It was just. Um, Triggered his latent tuberculosis. Correct. Yeah, tuberculosis. Out of the Navy. Yeah, yeah. yeah put him under the Navy. And- yeah, but the bottom line is, yeah, they put four four one thousand pound bombs into the forward part of the hangar deck and just turn it into an A frame. Um, mm. And yeah, that's that's the end of here. You and that's pretty much the end of the battle as far as the Japanese are concerned. I mean, there's going to be a lot of you know hand wringing and hair pulling. You know, they don't fully call it off until well after midnight. But you know, that's that's it. Yeah, it's uh, and I, I hate to run through the rest because I want to talk about it all, and we will, but we just can't do it today because we're running way long. Way long. But, but uh, as you said, John, as the sun is setting on the fourth of June, it's it's the battles for all intents and purposes over. Four Japanese carriers are burning. Yes, all their aircraft are gone. Yes, uh, a great many of those pilots are gone. Some of them are pulled out of the water. The majority of them. 
um, there's going to be 110 Japanese aviator fatalities in this battle. That's about a quarter of the, the aviators that come into this battle. And the majority of them are from Hiryu. Uh, Hiryu's two attack squadrons just are annihilated. Um, and a lot of her fighter pilots as well. But, you know, this, and we'll talk about this in the long-term implications uh, portion of the battle. The, the other thing we should say, though, about in terms of command decisions, yes, the sun is setting. And the last thing that Raymond Spruance has got to figure out to do today is where do I want my carriers to be tomorrow morning? Mm-hmm. Um, and he has to make a decision as to whether or not he's going to run his carriers to the west through the night to be in a position to follow up on his victory in the morning and really pummel the Japanese. Or does he think that the Japanese might have surface forces out gunning for him this evening? Which and therefore, do. a more conservative approach would be to hold himself at arm's distance throughout this evening. That sort of wrong foots him for tomorrow. He very wisely remembers Nimitz's calculated risk instruction and realize that there is nothing that he can do tonight um that warrants it's worth the risk you got it and mm-hmm. so he puts himself at arm's length which is wise because the japanese were out gunning for him uh, mm-hmm. in the evening hours yep and that would have been bad news bad news <laughs> that would have been and bad news 20 minutes under a battleship's guns and that could be it you know i yeah. could lose two more carriers just like that oh yeah Don't. and and a lot more too yeah. Well, I hate to cut the fascinating and exciting conversation uh, off, but we we have to. We got we got to cut it off. We're not cutting it short. We're just cutting it no, off. No, no, we're not. <laughs> right. But John, you're going to be back with us next week. Yes, sir. Awesome. We're, we're going to wrap it up. We're going to give off. Uh, we're going to give off. We're going to give the implications of this battle, the significance, and how we look at it through history, and we'll tie it in a neat little bow next week next Sounds week good. so uh so with that i want to thank you for listening in on our conversation please subscribe to the unauthorized history of the pacific war podcast wherever you receive your podcast and give us a rating and review we certainly would appreciate it also if you want to see the video version of this and any of our other episodes subscribe to our youtube channel called the unauthorized history of the pacific war podcast uh if you have a comment or a question send us an email at unauthorized pacific podcast at gmail.com And uh, once again, I want to thank you all very much for listening. Uh, I'm Seth Paradin. Bill? Yeah, and thanks, John. Really enjoyed it. Love being here. It was super fun. Thanks for having me. Cool, guys. Uh, We'll see you all next week. Thanks. Take care.